Governor Maura Healey declares a state of emergency over the family homelessness crisis. Shelters are overflowing. It's more families than our state has ever served. I am delivering an urgent and formal appeal to the federal government for intervention and action. It's Tuesday, August 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. It's been 18 months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's been documented more than any other war. It is unique in the sense that it is being largely fought by millennials on both sides who are very used to communication devices and are able to tape it. Also ahead, a congressional delegation reports back from the U.S.-Mexico border where the Texas governor installed a floating fence. And researchers try to toughen up baby oysters to stave off predators and restore oyster reefs. It's 401 News is First. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily reinstated a Biden administration rule for the sale of gun kits. NPR's Martin Costi reports a kit, sometimes called ghost guns, are a growing concern for law enforcement. Last year, the Biden administration told sellers of gun kits to start putting serial numbers on them and to do background checks on buyers as they would for an assembled gun. Gun rights groups sued, saying the new rule exceeds what's allowed under the Gun Control Act of 1968. And in June, a federal judge in Texas struck it down. As the administration appeals, it asked the Supreme Court to step in on an emergency basis to keep the rule in effect, citing a rising number of untraceable guns recovered from crime scenes. The justices agreed, voting 5-4 to four to keep the rule in place for now. Gun rights groups question the severity of the ghost gun crime problem, and they say it's up to Congress to decide if the regulations should be extended to kits. Martin Costi, NPR News. The U.S. government's taken a historic step today in what President Biden says will help right the wrongs of the past against tribal nations. He's designated a new national monument near the Grand Canyon. It extends federal protections to about a million acres of public land around Grand Canyon National Park and provides tribal families with more assistance against the impact of extreme heat and other conditions stemming from climate change. To honor the solemn promises the United States made to tribal nations to fulfill federal trust and treaty obligations. I pledge to keep using all that available authority to protect sacred tribal lands. The president was surrounded by tribal leaders and U.S. officials as he signed the proclamation establishing the ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument. Arizona was the first stop of a three-state tour. He turns his attention now to touting his economic and clean energy initiatives, top priorities as the Democrat seeks re-election. Americans are borrowing more money on their credit cards. NPR Scott Horsley reports total credit card balances topped a trillion dollars this spring for the first time ever. A new report from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York shows credit card balances grew by $45 billion during April, May, and June. After paying down credit card debt during the early months of the pandemic, Americans are now back to borrowing at a rapid rate. That borrowing comes at a high cost for the nearly one out of two credit card customers who carry a balance from month to month. The average interest rate on credit card debt now tops 20 percent. The number of people falling behind on credit card payments has rebounded after a period of very low delinquencies. Still, the New York Fed says it sees little evidence of widespread consumer distress. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks end the day lower. The Dow down 158 points, settling at 35,314. The Nasdaq was down 110 points, or roughly three-quarters of a percent. It's NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey has declared a state of emergency as Massachusetts faces a record number of families in the state-run shelter system. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports Healy is calling on communities and residents to act along with the federal government. Healy says the crisis is partly driven by an increase in new immigrants. Many of them are fleeing upheaval in places like Haiti. There are now more than 5,500 families in state-funded shelters, representing some 20,000 parents and children. It's more families than our state has ever served, exponentially more than our state has ever served in our emergency assistance program. Healy called on state residents to open their homes and their wallets, and she asked the federal government to expedite work authorization, saying many new arrivals are eager to work but can't legally do so. Healy follows other elected officials in making the emergency declaration to help with migrants seeking shelter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. A Boston man will serve four years in prison for the armed robbery of a postal worker in Peabody. 20-year-old Anthony Diaz was sentenced today after pleading guilty earlier this year to the charges. In January, Diaz held up the worker with a gun and stole a specialized key designed to open blue Postal Service collection boxes. The Department of Justice says in the last year there have been at least 12 assaults on letter carriers in the Boston area. Vice President Kamala Harris will be on Martha's Vineyard Saturday to raise money for President Biden's re-election campaign. The so-called grassroots reception will be paid for in part by the Biden campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The Cape and Islands have been popular on the 2024 campaign trail. First Lady Jill Biden and Republican candidate Ron DeSantis held fundraisers in the region earlier this summer. The severe weather that moved through the state earlier today sparked a tornado east of New Bedford. The National Weather Service says it struck Mattapoiset at about 11.30 this morning. Officials in the town say the storm damaged homes and trees and caused a number of trees and power lines to come down. There have been no reports of injuries. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it should be calmer on the weather front the rest of this afternoon and evening. I'm still tracking storms out there, but the worst action is over by and large. A few stronger cells this evening may result in some renewed localized flooding and brief damaging wind gusts, torrential downpours with this humidity in place. But this round is very hit or miss, nothing like what we had this morning and afternoon. The storms end overnight. And tomorrow's much better. Less humid, sun and clouds, highs in the mid-80s. The humidity goes back up a little bit on Thursday, and there'll be a chance of a thunderstorm in the late afternoon and evening, not as significant as today's action. And then a dry Friday, sunny skies, highs in the mid-80s for a beautiful end to the week. And right now it is 78 degrees in Boston under mostly cloudy skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A pair of Russian missile strikes slammed into a town in eastern Ukraine today, destroying apartments and cafes and a hotel popular with international aid workers and journalists. Seven people were killed, dozens injured, including emergency workers who raced to the scene of the first attack. 
Now, we want to take a step back for this next story. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has covered more than a dozen wars dating back to the 1980s, from Africa to Asia to the Middle East and now in Ukraine. He says the conflict in Ukraine is distinctly different for one important reason. It's the most documented war ever. When I started covering wars, a typical day was often like this. You woke up in a place with no electricity, no phone service, no television or newspapers. The internet didn't exist. In this news vacuum, every day was a blind treasure hunt. You'd swing by a government office, track down a military officer, visit a hospital, hang out at the marketplace. If you were lucky, by day's end, you'd found a story. Ukraine is different very different. There's more information from this war than probably any war in history, uh, immediately available. Rob Lee is a Marine veteran who's now a military analyst with the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. This fire hose of information was evident from the first day of Russia's full-scale invasion in February of last year. There was this kind of overload of information. It was, it was kind of difficult to keep track of a lot of it, and you kind of have to focus on one thing, one thing at a time because the whole kind of picture was, was really uh, was just too much information. Andrei Saplienko is a leading Ukrainian TV journalist who's reported on many conflicts. He says he's fundamentally changed the way he works. I felt it from the first hour of this war. When I got a call from my friend and he told me, so the invasion has started. And I decided to share this news as soon as possible. He posted on Telegram, the social media app of choice among Ukrainians and Russians. Saplienko had fewer than 10,000 followers at that point. Today, he has more than 300,000 on his Telegram channel, which he updates constantly with battlefield reports, videos, and nuggets of news. You have to do it quicker, much more quicker than before. And traditional media like television or papers or even websites, they are too slow. They are too slow. They are, you know, several steps behind the situation. The conflict in Ukraine is the most documented war for at least three reasons. The first is simply the march of technology, which offers a real-time look at the fighting as never before. Private satellite companies provide daily images of destruction inflicted on both sides of the front line. A drone films itself dropping a grenade on troops and trenches. Dmitry Alperovich, a prominent commentator on the war, says all this information is hugely helpful, but he adds a caveat. In some ways, it's really addictive to wake up in the morning, open up Telegram, and see this flood of videos, text messages, pictures showing you what's been occurring while you were asleep. Alperovich lives in Washington, where he runs a think tank, the Silverado Policy Accelerator, but I caught up with him in Ukraine because he says there's only so much you can learn from afar on social media or other sources. It's really, really important to understand that this is a very selective view that's being presented by each of the sides fighting this war. Uh, it can give you a lull into thinking that you know more than you actually do about the way the war is going. Rob Lee puts it this way. If there is a missile strike on a tank and that tank blows up, and if it goes on Twitter, right, a big fireball will get retweeted. So a lot of people will see that. Lee understands Twitter, now known as X. His following has grown from around 50,000 before the full-scale war to 670,000 today. 
But he stresses the war that's on social media can be very different from the actual war. There are a lot of videos also of missiles hitting tanks, right? Tanks surviving the strike. It's not getting retweeted that much because it's not a very kind of interesting video. I think a lot of people early on came to this very wrong conclusion that tanks were more obsolete than they were. The second big reason this war is so well chronicled is that much of Ukraine still functions despite the heavy fighting in the east and south of the country. Foreign journalists, aid workers, and diplomats all come and go freely to the capital Kiev and elsewhere. Schools, shops, and businesses are still operating, displaying Ukraine's resilience. This greatly benefits Ukraine, says Anton Garishchenko, a former government official who now heads a team that tweets constantly on the war and has nearly a half million followers. Ukraine has won the information war. Hundreds of millions of people all over the world saw our suffering and put pressure on their governments to provide us with support. This international attention focused on Ukraine is far greater than in other wars in less connected, less accessible countries such as Syria, Yemen, or Libya. A third crucial factor dates to Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine back in 2014. At that time, Ukraine felt it was struggling to get its message out to the world. International news organizations often had a permanent presence in Moscow, but not in Kyiv. In response, Ukraine made a major effort to accommodate media coverage. Again, Ukrainian reporter Andrei Saplienko. In Ukraine, the access to first-line positions is comparatively easy thing. In contrast, he says... So I used to work with the American forces in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. It doesn't work like this. It's a process. You know, you have to be embedded through the many procedures. On a frontline visit last year, Saplienko suffered shrapnel wounds. He now has an artificial hip, walks with a limp, and spends less time at the front. But with so much information available, he says, he can do more analytical work from a safer distance. Of course, the Ukrainian and Russian governments still want to keep parts of the war hidden. Yet even this comes with a twist. Russian military bloggers, often embedded with Russian troops, provide daily coverage from the battlefield. They're highly partisan, yet they're often the first to report Russian setbacks. Again, Dmitry Alperovich. You have this uh, unique dynamic where the Russian bloggers uh, and, and these ultra-patriots are very disappointed with the way the war has been going on. Um, they've been increasingly more truthful about the failures of the Russian military. Just one of the many ways this war is being covered like no other. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. People who've had a severe traumatic brain injury often struggle to remember recent events or conversations. So brain scientists are looking for ways to help. NPR's John Hamilton reports on an approach that delivers tiny pulses of electricity to improve short-term memory. Most traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs, are the mild type, a concussion. A fall or blow to the head causes symptoms that typically last a few days or weeks. Severe TBIs are far less common. But Dr. Ramon Diaz-Arastia says they can permanently impair a person's thinking and short-term memory. We see this a lot. This is a very common source of disability. Diaz-Arastia directs the TBI Clinical Research Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Among his patients are young men who were injured in a car or motorcycle crash. 
He says they often recover physically, but not mentally. We have patients, for example, whose family cannot leave them alone at home because, you know, they will turn on the stove and forget to turn it off. Diaz Arestia says even less disabled patients are frequently unable to go back to work. People that are having trouble remembering what they read five minutes ago or having trouble remembering what they were told five minutes ago are going to have a lot of problem holding the vast majority of jobs. So Diaz Arestia has been working with a team of scientists to restore damaged memory. One of them is Michael Kahana, professor of psychology at Penn. For years, Kahana has been studying why even a healthy person's memory works well sometimes and not so well other times. My memory is different than it was an hour ago or than it will be an hour from now. And it's that variability which may open the door to a whole host of potential ways that we can help people improve. By tweaking the brain so that it performs as well as it does in the best hour of its best day. Kahana's team started out by having a computer learn to recognize the electrical signals associated with retrieving a memory. We can predict in a moment-to-moment basis when memory will fail or succeed within a given person. Next, the team devised a system that could deliver a precisely timed pulse of electricity to a brain area just behind the ear. It would detect that you're about to have a memory lapse and it would try to jostle the system into a state that's more conducive to good function. The system worked in a small group of people without a history of TBI. That's when Kahana teamed up with Diaz Aristia, the TBI expert, to put together a new experiment. So in this study, for the first time, we actually tested this therapy in patients who had a history of moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. The study, which appears in the journal Brain Stimulation, involved eight people. Like previous participants, all were being evaluated for severe epilepsy, so they already had wires inserted in their brains. Scientists use these wires to both monitor activity and deliver electrical pulses. Kahana says the participants were shown a list of words. Common English words like key, car, rose, cat, book, lamp. Then they tried to remember which words they'd seen. Kahana says when the system saw that a person was about to have a memory lapse, it sent an electrical pulse to that brain area behind the ear. By electrically stimulating at only moments when you were predicted to fail, we were able to move the brain from a poor state into a better state. Stimulation improved their accuracy by about 20%, suggesting that it reduced their memory deficit by about half. Kahana has a financial interest in one company that plans to commercialize this technology. Several other companies are also working on brain stimulation systems. The systems are designed to boost memory and thinking in people with a range of conditions, including Alzheimer's disease. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us here on WBUR this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the U.S. pushes for a diplomatic resolution in the West African country of Niger, where American officials say Russian-backed mercenaries are taking advantage of instability. On Wall Street today, the Dow slipped almost 160 points, or half a percent. The S&P lost 0.4 percent. NASDAQ dipped 0.8 percent. And in local business news, the development arm of Shoemaker New Balance is planning to replace a vacant warehouse in Brighton with 76 condos. The company filed plans with the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The proposed building on North Beacon Street would include affordable units and ground floor retail space. This is 90.9 WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is this weekend. Hunter Douglas Automated PowerView Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Well, tonight might bring some more showers and thunderstorms before 10. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with temps in the upper 60s. The sun will return tomorrow. It looks like a mostly sunny day with temps in the mid-80s. More of the same heading into Thursday, a sunny day, at least until that afternoon when we'll have a chance of showers. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Late Friday, for a few hours, Texas's abortion laws changed. Abortions became legal for patients with serious pregnancy complications. On Saturday, the bans came back in full force. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more on what happened with the state's abortion laws and what happens next. This back and forth came as part of a lawsuit filed earlier this year by the Center for Reproductive Rights. Thirteen patients sued Texas, saying the medical exceptions were unclear. They all needed abortion care for pregnancy complications, but that care was denied or delayed. In July, four of them took the stand in Travis County in two days of intense, dramatic testimony, arguing that the bans should be put on hold while the case moves through the courts. On Friday evening, Jessica Mangrum, the judge who heard that testimony, filed a six-page decision in favor of the patients and put a hold on the abortion bans when it comes to emergent medical conditions and serious fetal anomalies. Just so excited. Lauren Miller of Dallas is one of the patients who sued. On Friday night, when she saw the decision come out, she was elated. I feel like for the last year, we have just been crying, screaming, for somebody in the legislature, somebody in the judiciary to help us. And we really hadn't gotten that until now. And so it just, it felt like we were finally being heard. Dr. Damla Carson is also one of the plaintiffs. She is an OBGYN. I was on call Friday night. I thought, okay, send me all the patients that need care quick. She says that night, with the injunction, she felt like she could be freer to treat patients facing complications without worrying about the possibility of life in prison or losing her medical license, the penalties for violating the state's abortion bans. In her decision, Judge Mangrum wrote that the medical exceptions in the current laws are unclear and that doctors need to be able to follow their good faith judgment in treating patients with complications without waiting for them to get near death before intervening. It was definitely validation, but I also knew that it was going to be very short-lived. I mean, we fully expected an appeal. And that's what happened. On Saturday, the state of Texas used a special avenue to appeal the decision on the injunction directly to the Texas Supreme Court, putting the bans back in place. The Texas Attorney General's office did not respond to NPR's request for comment for this story. 
Doctors are the target of the laws in Texas. And during the hearing last month, attorneys for the state asked every patient who testified if they were planning to file malpractice claims against their providers for the harrowing experiences they described. They tried to say that anybody who didn't provide the appropriate care, quote unquote, that was malpractice. And then they took it a level further, I think, and implied at least that it was the hospital attorney's fault. In reality, Dr. Carson says, everybody in the medical field is scrambling and afraid. The penalties are so steep. She recalls a recent exchange with a pharmacist who refused to fill a prescription for one of her patients. It was for misoprostol, a medication that can be used for abortion, but is also used for many other things. In this case, for a woman who was getting an IUD for birth control. He had the nerve to get on the phone and say, if I administer this medicine to someone who's trying to get an abortion, it's a $10,000 fine. And I said, I am absolving you of your responsibility. I am telling you it's not for an abortion. She says she realizes this kind of circumstance isn't going to go away overnight. The lawsuit is a long game, and she's glad she can be part of it and not feel helpless. So now the question of the injunction goes to the Texas Supreme Court. Elizabeth Sepper is a law professor at UT Austin. She explains all nine justices are Republican. She says they can be nimble, so they could make a decision quickly. But it's not clear what they'll do in this case. So you could imagine a very narrow ruling that says something like, right, there's not a need for an injunction right now because the status quo is the abortion ban is in place. Let's have a trial. If it is a narrow ruling like this, the trial is set for March 2024 in Austin. But a lot of times, right, when you're dealing with injunctions, courts are also analyzing the merits, right? So if the court says a lot about the merits of the case, you would certainly see, for example, a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. That argument would go, this case shouldn't go to trial because you don't need a trial to know that Texas will ultimately prevail and keep the abortion laws as is. Sepper thinks going to trial is important to draw attention to what's happening to patients in Texas. I think it matters to have their voices heard and reported on. For now, the Texas abortion bans with their narrow medical exceptions and steep penalties remain in place. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. One of the most wanted home break-in suspects in South Lake Tahoe, California, has been captured. It's a big deal. Really, almost a 400-pound deal. When we investigate a bear break-in, we go and we take evidence to make sure that it was a bear. And it was, indeed, a massive black bear, according to Jordan Traverso, spokesperson for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. The bear has been notorious for damaging property and breaking into houses across the area for more than a year now. So notorious that residents gave the bear a nickname, Hank the Tank. Although she is a female bear, we call her Bear 64F. Traverso says her colleagues safely tranquilized Hank, a.k.a. Bear 64F, last week after linking her to at least 21 break-ins since last year using DNA and forensic evidence. It is wild animal CSI, and it's actually, I think it's incredibly cool. It's not the first time wildlife officials have encountered 64F either. She had an existing rap sheet. The department actually first captured and tagged her last year. So this is how we know that we have bears that are 
repeat offenders because we found their saliva in this home invasion and in this home invasion and in this one over here. And so that's how they get a rap sheet. Okay, here's the other thing to know. Bear64F had cubs in the past year. Traverso says she was likely teaching them to hunt in the wild and inside people's homes. In an ideal situation, a bear would teach their cubs how to get fish out of a river, how to find berries off of a berry plant. Um, In this situation, because the food reward was so much easier to get, you don't have to chase it. You don't have to dig for it. Some human left it in a pile outside a a bear box, and she was able to get in there and get it easily. A cub is going to learn how to get food from how its mother teaches it to do so, and that's what she would eventually end up teaching those cubs. Traverso also says there were other bears breaking into homes too, but the animals aren't solely to blame in these situations. Really, the bad behavior is amongst humans who are having attractants in their homes or not securing their garbage. And sometimes it's one homeowner could be great, but your next door neighbor might be a vacation home where some folks aren't doing what they have to do. Still, it's 64F and her cubs who will bear the brunt of the consequences of the growing urban fringe. Officials say 64F will now live out her life in a roomy sanctuary in Colorado. It's a really actually lucky ending for a bear like this because we don't always have sanctuary space. We don't have the ability to send problem bears in California to Colorado. This is a very unique alternative that I don't imagine we'll be able to employ maybe ever again. And as for Hank's cubs, they'll undergo rehabilitation in Northern California to get them ready for release back into the wild. So residents of South Lake Tahoe, consider yourself warned. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, researchers work to toughen up baby oysters to help them stave off predators in order to restore oyster reefs around the world. And Governor Healy has declared a state of emergency to address the state's overflowing family shelter system. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel has been following the situation. She'll have an update in about 20 minutes. Well, a few showers and thunderstorms might pop up tonight. We'll have a low around 67 degrees. Tomorrow, skies will brighten and we'll see a high around 84. Thursday looks sunny again, temps in the mid-80s, but there might be some showers that afternoon. And Friday should be sunny with a high around 83. Right now, it is 83 degrees in Boston under partly sunny skies. This is 90.9. by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. It's been nearly two years since the Taliban seized control of Kabul. Desperate Afghans continue to flee to the United States. Some are even scaling the wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. In the wall, they put something like a rope, and after that, they told us, come. One family story of survival. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Alabama, police in Montgomery have issued arrest warrants for at least four people involved in a riverboat brawl that drew nationwide attention after a group of white men were seen on video beating down a black riverboat worker, setting off a massive fight. Police Chief Daryl Albert says several people were detained and charges are pending. He says the investigation is ongoing and more arrests are likely. 
We were about a good time, enjoying ourselves and being neighborly. So it was quite disturbing that we saw this type of activity happening. And that's why the Montgomery Police Department and all of our partnering agencies got together to make sure we're doing all we can to not only bring this case to a close, but prevent it from happening in the future. Video shows a white man shoving and punching the riverboat co-captain. Then several other white people joined in. Several black passengers then confronted the group, sparking another fight. Construction workers hired for federal projects will see a boost in wages. That's thanks to a new rule that Vice President Kamala Harris announced today in Philadelphia. Here's NPR's Andrea Hsu. The new rule is an update to the Davis-Bacon Act of 1931. The rule requires construction workers who build or repair public buildings and public works to be paid the prevailing local wage, the going wage for that area. What's changing is how that wage will be calculated. Here's Vice President Harris. Many workers are paid much less than they deserve, much less than the value of their work. And not just by a little, in some cases by thousands of dollars a year. This rule, she says, will raise wages for an estimated one million workers. The industry trade group, Associated Builders and Contractors, argues that the rule will needlessly raise construction costs on taxpayer-funded projects. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. There's still significant work ahead on the Sumner Tunnel. It's been closed for repairs for a little over a month and is scheduled to reopen in about three weeks. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has an update on the project. For the last few weeks, crews have been installing concrete arches to reinforce the tunnel's ceiling. In order for the tunnel to reopen, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation's Jonathan Gulliver says workers will need to get the ventilation system up and running. So that, that's going to be the real focus for the remainder of the month is to make sure they get that done. That's where they're going to have the majority of their crews. Gulliver says the repair work is about 60 percent complete and he expects the tunnel to reopen as scheduled on August 31st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The MBTA is pushing out its expected delivery date for new train cars. Commonwealth Magazine reports new Orange Line cars are expected to be finished this December. They were originally due in January of last year. The new Red Line cars will be ready by September of 2026 instead of this September. The cars are being manufactured in Springfield. A Chinese company called CRRC is behind the manufacturing effort. Researchers are celebrating the Food and Drug Administration's approval of a pill to treat postpartum depression. Neuroscientist Jamie McGuire of Tufts University School of Medicine did some of the initial research that became the building block of the pill's formulation. She says she hopes the FDA approval will reduce the stigma women who struggle with postpartum depression feel. Women's health, and and in particular maternal health, has lacked appropriate attention and resources. As a result, postpartum depression has gone underdiagnosed and lacked targeted therapies. My hope is that this orally available treatment will make the treatment more accessible and more affordable. McGuire says researchers will continue to study the effectiveness of the drug for major depressive disorder. A Brockton woman will serve prison time for an extortion scheme at a Registry of Motor Vehicles location in her city. 44-year-old Mia Cox Johnson was sentenced today in federal court to four months in prison and six months of house arrest. She used to manage the RMV Service Center in Brockton. Cox Johnson took money in exchange for giving passing grades on learner's permit tests. It's 435. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Royals tonight at Fenway, weather permitting. The Sox are hoping to keep the momentum after a thrilling walk-off Grand Slam victory over Kansas City last night. Cutter Crawford will get the start. Well, we could see some more showers and thunderstorms tonight. Uh, We'll have a low around 67. Then mostly sunny tomorrow with a high around 84 degrees. Thursday, a chance of showers in the afternoon. Otherwise, it'll be mostly sunny with temps in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To the U.S.-Mexico border now and the floating border fence that Texas has installed in the Rio Grande to try to deter migrants from crossing. It's a string of bright orange buoys about the length of three soccer fields with webbing underneath to make it hard to swim below. Now, Mexico objects to this barrier. The U.S. Justice Department has sued Texas, arguing that the barrier poses environmental and humanitarian concerns. Texas Governor Republican Greg Abbott is standing firm. Well, Texas Democrat Joaquin Castro is there. He's leading a congressional delegation to see the situation firsthand. We have reached him in a bus. He has just wrapped up a visit to the border town of Eagle Pass. Congressman, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Describe briefly what you saw at the border today. Well, it's uh, what we suspected. Uh, Those devices that uh, Governor Greg Abbott has installed on the banks of the Rio Grande are types of drowning devices, really death traps. You've got, uh, we were right near what is razor wire, and you look at this razor wire, and some of it is invisible. It's, you know, the water comes above it. And so people can't see it and get caught up in it. There was items of clothing that were caught up in the razor wire. The the buoys or barrel traps have a chainsaw type device in the middle of them. And so, you know, there's a right way to treat people in a wrong way. And this is the wrong way. And he's treating these people like animals. Um, Two bodies have been pulled from the Rio Grande in recent days. One of them was caught in the barrier. I do want to note the Texas Department of Public Health says that that person may have drowned upstream and then drifted into the barrier. You say that Governor Abbott has blood on his hands. Why? I believe that's right, because he knows that these devices are going to make it more likely that people will drown or that they will be forced to go to another part of the river that is deeper uh, and tougher to swim, and therefore may make it more likely for them to drown. And you know, the governor is doing this because of politics and uh, because he wants to stoke his primary base. Congressman, as you know, the Rio Grande has been uh, one of the deadliest travel routes for migrants trying to come to the U.S. Uh, for many years, hundreds of people have died trying to cross it, going back way before Texas put this floating barrier in place. And Governor Abbott argues 
that the barrier is there to try to prevent more deaths, to serve as a visual deterrent and get people to cross safely at a port of entry. Is he wrong? Oh, he's absolutely wrong. Uh, I think he has no expertise in how you uh, control migration, has not studied it, has not worked on it before. Uh, it's a political stunt. And you're right. Look, people have drowned in the waters trying to reach the United States, not only from Mexico, from Haiti, from Cuba, from other places around the world. But that is no reason to make it more dangerous and more likely that they will drown and more inhumane in the treatment that we offer to asylum seekers. Yet that is what Greg Abbott has done. And just to push you on this point, I was looking at a letter that Governor Abbott wrote to President Biden back on the 24th of July, in which he says, look, I share the humanitarian concerns. But again, he, he points to the need to push people towards safe and legal entry at a port of entry. And he writes, quote, nobody drowns on a bridge. Yeah, look, I think there's something we can all agree on. We want uh, migration to be as efficient and orderly as possible. But it's also true that throughout the generation, there are people who are so desperate that they try to do anything possible to make it to the safe shores of the United States. The question for us as moral people and as elected officials is how you treat them as human beings. Do you treat them as human beings or do you treat them as animals? the way Greg Abbott is doing. So I guess the basic question, what should Texas do? I mean, we interview people in border towns and they tell us about the strain that migrants put on resources. I'm guessing you heard some of those same concerns as you visited a border town today. What do you say to local officials who feel like their hands are tied? Uh, Well, first, Texas should commit more resources, more money to cities like Eagle Pass and Del Rio and El Paso and Laredo and McAllen that are on the border and the local officials and the local communities that are actually trying to help process these asylum seekers and whose infrastructures uh, are being tested uh, when you have an influx of migration. Uh, And yet, Greg Abbott, rather than doing enough of that, what he's done is created a political stunt and spent billions of dollars also violating people's civil rights. I mean, they are keeping people in jail for months at a time on class B misdemeanors, which would never happen if you were charged with a class B misdemeanor in San Antonio or anywhere else in the state. Uh, And so that's why I think Greg Abbott is being disingenuous in his argument. That is Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas speaking with us right after a visit to the U.S.-Mexico border. Congressman, thank you. Safe travels. Thank you. The Biden administration sent a top diplomat to Niger this week to talk coup leaders into getting back into constitutional order. But the coup leaders are dug in and don't seem interested in a negotiated solution. Today, they even rebuffed a delegation from the African Union, the United Nations and a West African regional group. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Nuland says she spent a couple of hours with the man who now claims to be defense minister in Niger. General Moussa Barmou has worked closely with U.S. Special Forces over many years and was trained by the U.S. We were able to go through in considerable detail um, the risks to aspects of our cooperation that he has historically cared about a lot. So we are hopeful that 
that will sink in. But Newland says she didn't get any traction when she pushed for a negotiated settlement. Cameron Hudson, an analyst with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, described Newland's trip this way. It felt a little bit like a Hail Mary, quite frankly, but I think a worthwhile one. Washington has invested you know, billions of dollars in development assistance and military aid to Niger. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held up Niger as a model for the region when he visited earlier this year. Now the U.S. has put some aid on hold, including a military training program. The U.S. still has about 1,000 troops based in Niger. Hudson believes the coup leaders do want continued support from the U.S., but that won't happen if they let Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group get involved, as some neighboring states have. If they want to have any relationship with Washington, it cannot also include the Wagner Group operating in the country. So that's a pretty clear red line that Washington has laid down, and I think it's going to be the junta leaders that decide which way they want to lean going forward. The State Department's Victoria Nuland says she raised concerns about Wagner when she was in Niger Monday. I would not say that we learned much more about their thinking on that front. U.S. officials do not think that the Wagner Group instigated the coup in Niger, but they are worried that the Russian mercenary group is taking advantage of the instability. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It may not be top of mind when you think of protecting our shores from climate change, but oyster reefs are an important natural resource towards that end. And in Alabama, researchers are working to restore the reefs. Now, that involves toughening up baby oysters against predators to increase their survival rate in the big, bad, undersea world of Mobile Bay. Guy Busby with Alabama Public Radio reports. Near the small fishing port of Balabatry, eight people in hip-deep water unload hundreds of sacks of oyster shells. We spawn oysters, we settle those onto the shells. Lee Smee is with the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, a marine research center on Alabama's Gulf Coast. Here in Mobile Bay, they're trying to rebuild oyster reefs that have been destroyed by over-harvesting. Today, Smee and his team are putting out up to 20 million baby oysters that grew in a lab. Uh, we grow them for a month, and then we bring them out, and we put them out. So there's baby oysters on the shells when we put them out. And the reason we started doing that, um, the populations of oysters have gotten so low, there's just not enough naturally occurring um, spawning going on. The little lab oyster babies are about the size of a dime and grow best when stuck on the larger oyster shells. This process is called spat on shell. Baby oysters are called spats. These babies also get an advantage. While growing in the lab, crab urine is mixed with their water. The experimental side is part of that spot on shell gets exposed to a predator cue, in this case a blue crab that's caged that we've been feeding oysters to. So when a baby oyster senses this predator cue, it reacts. Uh, that makes some of the oysters toughen up their shells, because oysters are known to toughen up, harden their shells when predators are around. So here in Mobile Bay, Smee says half the oyster babies have been exposed to the crab urine, and the others have not. Uh, last year we found that, that mortality in the ones that were not exposed to predators after about six months was 90%, which isn't terribly unexpected for oysters. I mean, they spawn a lot and a lot of them die, um, but that, that rate was only like 70% in the ones that had predator cues. 
Oyster reefs are important for estuary ecosystems like this one. They help protect the coastline and provide food for many other marine species. What's now needed is a way to grow stronger oysters on a commercial level, says Ben Belgrade, a scientist at Dolphin Island Sea Lab. Before we were doing this in little containers, toughing in up maybe a couple hundred oysters at a time, that's not going to work for reef restoration. We need to be able to do this to millions of individuals simultaneously. The idea is to recreate the chemicals that trigger shell growth. Our next goal with this is actually to be able to identify the molecules that the predators are releasing and be able to just synthesize those in the lab and fertilize our oysters with them like we fertilize our crops with nitrogen to make them grow bigger. Two of those molecules, Belgrade says, have already been identified by a lab at Georgia Tech, and that research is ongoing. It's all part of a worldwide effort to restore oyster reefs. Matthew Ogburn is an oyster reef restoration scientist with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. He says there are experiments rotating harvest areas to allow oysters time to grow and breeding disease-resistant oysters. There's a lot of different research projects going on to, to try to figure out how, what the best methods are for oyster restoration. And he says this research in Mobile Bay could potentially have a lot of value for oyster reef restoration going forward. For NPR News, I'm Guy Busby in Battery, Alabama. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour here on All Things Considered, a new initiative to send heat alerts to doctors and nurses so they can advise their patients who are most at risk of heat-related illnesses. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Royals tonight at Fenway. And that is if weather is... if weather permits the game to happen because tonight could bring a few more showers and thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be a mostly cloudy night with temps in the upper 60s. Then tomorrow, the sun reappears. Temperatures will approach the mid-80s. Thursday should be mostly sunny, but we'll have a chance of showers in the afternoon. And Friday looks like a beautiful lead-in to the weekend. Sunny with a high around 83. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The political organization No Labels claims it's trying to unite Americans around a third-party candidate for 2024. The American people are not divided. The leaders of both parties in Washington are divided. But are the group's goals so lofty? Could their efforts instead put Donald Trump back in the White House? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey has declared a state of emergency to address the crisis in the state's overflowing family shelter system. The crisis has been partly driven by the significant number of migrant families arriving in Massachusetts. The emergency declaration calls on the federal government to take steps to help ease the crisis. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel has been following this issue, and she joins us now with the latest. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. So tell us more about the emergency declaration. What exactly did Governor Healy say in it? 
So she really made a call to action, both for individuals and for all levels of government. She said the situation right now is just unsustainable. The state-funded family shelter system is serving a record number of households, nearly 5,600 households, and that represents more than 20,000 parents and children. It's more families than our state has ever served, exponentially more than our state has ever served in our emergency assistance program. Healy begged the federal government for funds and other help. I am delivering an urgent and formal appeal to the federal government for intervention and action. We need action to remove barriers and expedite federal work authorizations. And she said for many immigrant parents in shelter, it's been taking months or years to get the legal right to work. The governor spoke with a lot of sympathy about these newly arrived immigrants um, who, are, she said, are driving the surge. But she said the shelter system is just not designed to deal with this national and geopolitical issue. So what kind of help is the state looking for in declaring this emergency? And what are some of the steps the federal government could take in response? Yes, so it's important to note that this um, emergency declaration is different from the one declared by former Governor Charlie Baker to address COVID. It does not expand the governor's power, but it lays the groundwork for her to invoke additional powers going forward if needed. Many advocates are hoping it will unlock federal funds, and Healy really emphasized that she's looking for the federal government to speed up the process for immigrants to get work permits. And Gabriella, you've been reporting on this for several months, really extensively. Tell us more about how the population in family shelters has increased and how the influx of migrant families has played a role in that. Yeah, so the state does not have exact numbers on how many families in shelter are newly arrived. I'm hearing somewhere between a third and a half. Many of these families are fleeing violence and unrest in places like Haiti and Venezuela. Recently, I was at a shelter which has 45 families there that was very rapidly set up by Catholic Charities Boston. One family there with three kids told me through a translator that they've been on the road since 2019, and all they want is to go to school and to go to work. Cardinal Sean O'Malley was also at this shelter, and behind him you can hear just how busy it was. There are people willing to make sacrifices. Uh, They have strong uh, community and family values that also will enrich us as a people. And, And so although we're giving, we're going to receive a lot. Yeah, you can definitely hear a lot of families there in the background. So the shelters are clearly so busy, uh, crowded. What does this mean in terms of the conditions in the shelters and the level of service that can be provided? I've spoken with a number of shelter providers who say they are really struggling to find new shelter units and to find the staff to support the shelter units. Some have said there is overcrowding and safety concerns, especially for the families that don't speak English and are in hotels that are far from transportation. Advocates tell me there are more than 400 families staying in hotels and motels that don't have the usual services that go along with shelter, so things like case managers. And some family shelter providers actually pushed for this emergency declaration, right? Does Mm -hmm. that mean they're all supportive of this? You're absolutely right that a number have definitely pushed for this and are strongly supportive. They say they hope it will rally community support and prompt federal help. But some have been more uh, cautious, I would say. They want to see how things unfold before they weigh in. 
And while we wait to see how everything unfolds due to this emergency declaration, what is the state doing? What has the state been doing to address the situation? Officials have actually been trying a whole bunch of new approaches, including a new family welcome center model. They're offering legal aid to migrants. They've helped um, facilitate a new migrant relief fund. And as we've reported, they are actually asking individual residents of Massachusetts to open their homes and welcome families that need shelter. And to donate money if possible. Yes. Great. That's WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from LaQuista Arena. A few years ago, her seven-year-old son Jackson was diagnosed with autism. Jackson was often overwhelmed by sensory experiences, and haircuts were the worst. He'd get so anxious that he'd start kicking and screaming. Eventually, his mom found a barber named Ree, who over time learned how to stave off Jackson's meltdowns. But one day in early 2022, everything went wrong. We got caught in traffic. He left his headphones. We hadn't had lunch. It was just like a series of unfortunate events. And he's like, no, I don't want to go. I was like, come on, Jackson, stop playing. Like, I got things to do. I'm like hungry myself. Like, we usually... I have to say it like three times. And this time he refused to get in the seat. And he started running around the shop. And Rhea is like, come on, Jackson, man. You know you're my man. Like, she's trying to talk to him. She tried to put the cape on him. And he just had a fit. And she was like, come look in the mirror. I'm, I'm going to show you what I'm doing. And he looked, but he still wasn't having it. And I was like, come on, Jackson, I'm getting frustrated. And she's like, no, I got it. And so I just sat on the couch and I'm like, she's not going to be able to cut his hair. I'm going to give it five minutes. We're going to go get something to eat and go home. Well, next thing you know, I'm looking and she's like cutting his hair. He's standing up and I'm like, wait, she's playing a game with him. She would shave his hair, the hair would fall, he would wipe it off. And then they would run to a different spot because he doesn't like the hair to get on him. It's like a whole thing. So it was a good distraction for him. And she was able to kind of cut his hair. When they got finished, like he was so happy. And he's like, well, can we go back tomorrow and play the game? I was like, I don't know about tomorrow, but we'll be back in a couple weeks. Jackson and Reed, they have their own special relationship. And I think most importantly, he trusts her. He will not let anyone else touch his hair. And that just goes to show, like, how she nurtured that relationship. When Ree was able to do this, it meant the absolute world for me to be able to trust her and be like, okay, I know she's going to take care of my son and make sure he's looking the best. Like, you can't ask for anything more than that. I just want to tell Reed that we love you. You are part of our family now. And you'll never fully understand how much this meant to me as a mom. 
Laquista Arena of Loganville, Georgia, she took a video of Ree and Jackson playing the haircutting game and posted it online. The clip went viral and now has millions of views. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next hour on All Things Considered, we'll have the latest on a brawl over the weekend between black and white crowds in Montgomery, Alabama. It's led to some arrests. A few showers and thunderstorms might pop up tonight. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy overnight with a low around 67. Bright sunny skies tomorrow with a high around 84. This is WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden designates a national monument on almost a million acres of land surrounding the Grand Canyon. Native Americans have pushed for the declaration for at least a decade to prevent uranium mining. It's Tuesday, August 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a new project partly led by Harvard is using heat alerts to notify doctors and nurses about dangerous local temperatures so they can help protect their patients most at risk from heat-related illnesses. This is not your grandmother's heat, so we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. Plus rehoming tiny, rare snails and studying their decline to help mitigate broader climate change. And looking back on 50 years of hip-hop and the first commercially released album. It's 501, First the News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In Arizona near the Grand Canyon, President Biden has signed a proclamation creating a new national monument permanently protecting land sacred to several Native American tribes. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, it's part of a western swing for the president focusing on the environment. This monument designation was a long time in coming for Arizona tribes who had spent years advocating that the land be protected. President Biden said this monument preserves thousands of religious and cultural sites stripped from the original inhabitants more than a hundred years ago. Our nation's history is etched in our people and in our lands. Today's action is going to protect and preserve that history, along with these high plateaus and deep canyons. The monument designation will make permanent a 20-year-old moratorium on permitting new uranium mining in the nearly million-acre landscape. Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president in Grand Canyon National Park. Around 3,000 sailors and Marines have arrived in the Middle East, part of an effort to protect commercial shipping in the region. Steve Walsh with member station WHRO in Norfolk has the story. The ships were part of an effort to counter Iranian forces in the region. The U.S. has accused the Iranian 
Iranians of attacking or seizing over a dozen internationally flagged vessels over the past two years. The ships were passing through the Persian Gulf in the Straits of Hormuz. The Bataan Amphibious Ready Group and the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit left bases around Norfolk in July. The Marines are based at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. The USS Bataan and the USS Carter Hall bring additional aircraft to the area, along with Marines trained in amphibious operations. Several media outlets report the U.S. is considering offering to put Marines on board commercial vessels traveling through the region. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. Package shipper UPS is downgrading its earnings forecast for this year, in large part because of a new contract reached with the company's 340,000 unionized workers. UPS says it's lowering full-year revenue expectations by $4 billion due to the tentative deal, along with falling volume. Stocks sank after the opening bell, but regained some of the ground they lost. As NPR's David Gurr reports, the rating agency Moody's raised concerns about a handful of regional banks. Moody's put State Street and BNY Mellon on notice and downgraded 10 regional lenders, including M&T Bank and Commerce Bank, citing funding pressures and rising risks associated with the exposure they and other small and mid-sized lenders have to commercial real estate. That's because of rising interest rates and reduced demand for office space. Shares of the big banks also fell. Moody's says it's concerned about banks' bond holdings, something that got Silicon Valley Bank into trouble earlier this year. Many lenders say the value of their bond portfolios has fallen as the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow closed down 158 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Things are much calmer this hour on the weather front. Earlier today, storms rumbled through the area, triggering numerous thunderstorm and flash flood warnings. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us a twister even touched down in Mattapoisett. A confirmed tornado in Mattapoisett around 11.30 this morning. The National Weather Service surveying the damage in that area. The most widespread and worst storms and flooding have passed, though additional hit or miss downpours and storms are possible through this evening and may result in some renewed localized flooding or brief wind gusts. The action all winds down tonight and drier air works into the region tomorrow. You're going to feel the difference. Low humidity, sun and clouds, highs in the mid-80s. We turn a little more humid again Thursday with a late-day thunderstorm possible. Friday's looking beautiful, sunny, not humid, and warm with highs in the mid-80s. And there were no injuries reported from today's tornado. Governor Healy is declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts due to the record number of people in the state-run family shelter system. Healy says some 5,600 families, or about 20,000 individuals, now reside in state-funded shelters and hotels. She says the crunch is largely due to an influx of migrants fleeing unlivable conditions in their home countries. Healy plans to ask for federal assistance to address the crisis. Former President Trump campaigned in Wyndham, New Hampshire today. It's his first visit since being indicted for allegedly conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. As NHPR's Todd Bookman reports, Trump's supporters are mostly shrugging off his legal challenges. Despite a few downpours, the line to get into Wyndham High School snaked around the building. Speak with these voters, and almost to a person, they'll say that the recent indictments are politically motivated. Al Heath of Derry said he wasn't putting any stock in the allegations. But the American people don't care about what's going on right now. They want someone to run this country like a business, not like, like man. not the way it's run now. But a jury of his peers may find him guilty. Yeah, what, eight people? Twelve people, maybe? That's it. The rest of the people here want to see him in office. Trump also faces charges in two other ongoing criminal cases, including one alleging he mishandled classified documents. Polls show he has a comfortable margin with New Hampshire Republican primary voters. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. 
We could see some more showers and thunderstorms pop up overnight tonight. We'll have a low in the upper 60s. Then tomorrow looks like a mostly sunny day with a high around 84 degrees. Thursday we'll have a chance of showers in the afternoon. Otherwise, it should be mostly sunny that day with temps in the mid-80s. Friday and Saturday, 80s again with more sunshine. Right now it's 83 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Phoenix could see a high temperature of 109 degrees today. It'll be 98 in Jacksonville, Florida, and 96 in Medford, Oregon. It has been a summer of successive heat waves. Well, as the country sizzles, the dangers that heat poses to human bodies have become frighteningly clear, and the risks are much higher for some than others. An innovative pilot project is trying to address this by sending heat alert emails to doctors and nurses in Massachusetts and and six states across the country. Martha Biebinger at WBUR explains. In Boston, the first heat alert popped into inboxes on June 1st. It was 83 degrees that day, still not hot enough to trigger an official heat warning. But in Boston, when temperatures rise past the mid-70s, heat-related hospitalizations and deaths rise too. Dr. Rebecca Rogers, a primary care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance, says it's particularly dangerous early in what doctors call the heat season. People are quite vulnerable because their bodies haven't yet adjusted to heat. For Rogers, that first email and another that arrived as temperatures rose in July bumped heat to the forefront of her conversations in the exam room. And the emails suggest Rogers prioritize heat planning with specific patients. Older individuals, outdoor workers, individuals with chronic medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. Also young athletes training on sweltering fields and people without air conditioning. Okay. Okay, you go straight through there. Her patient, Luciano Gomez, works construction. If you were getting too hot at work and maybe starting to get sick, do you know some things to look out for? No. So Rogers describes signs of heat exhaustion, dizziness, weakness, and sweating a lot. She hands Gomez some tip sheets she got with the email alerts. On one, a color band from pale yellow to dark gold is a sort of urine hydration barometer. So if your pee is dark like this during the day when you're at work, probably means you need to drink more water. An interpreter translates into Portuguese for Gomez, who's from Brazil. He knows heat, but he has questions about staying hydrated. Because here I've been addicted to soda. I'm trying to change to sparkling water, but I don't have too much knowledge on how much I can take of it. Yeah, sparkling water... You know, it's fine. As long as it doesn't have sugar, it's totally good. Rogers has her own questions. Should patients taking meds that make them pee more often take less of the drug when it's hot? There's no firm answer yet. And Rogers knows that being unable to cool down overnight can trigger a health crisis. But she isn't sure how to help patients who cannot afford an air conditioner or who don't have stable housing. Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States. This is Dr. Caleb Dresser, one of the people who sends the alerts. And it is set to be an increasing problem in the years to come as a result of climate change. 
Dresser works out of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Weather expertise comes from Climate Central, an independent source of climate science. Staff at 12 community health centers around the country are receiving alerts tailored to their location. In Portland, Oregon, for example, an early heat wave triggered an alert on May 14th. This month, alerts will only go out on the most excessively hot and humid days, so they don't become too routine. Andrew Pershing is with Climate Central. So what we're just trying to say is, like, you really need to go into heat mode now. Pershing and colleagues are tweaking the language of alerts this summer, looking for messages that will change behavior. Because studies show many people don't take heat warnings seriously. Ashley Ward studies heat policy at Duke and says that has to change. This is not your grandmother's heat. So we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. The pilot has limitations. Most clinicians are only discussing heat with the patients who have appointments. They do not have a way to flag all of their high-risk patients or send them individual alerts at home. That's one possible improvement researchers may explore before next summer rolls around. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. The story comes from NPR's partnership with WBUR and KFF Health News. Authorities in Hong Kong appear to be dead set on banning a song. It's called Glory to Hong Kong. The tune emerged as a protest anthem during anti-government demonstrations in the city four years ago. Late last month, a judge rejected a government request that would have outlawed performance and distribution of the song. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, the government is appealing, setting up a showdown with major internet companies. Glory to Hong Kong is already banned in schools, and people have been arrested for playing it in public. But the government wants it scrubbed from websites and music streaming platforms, in part because this kept happening at sporting events. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the national anthem of Hong Kong. That's Glory to Hong Kong being played at a medal ceremony during the 2022 Asian Classic Powerlifting Championship in Dubai. It's not the city's national anthem. China's March of the Volunteers is. But it comes up in online searches, and the government's requests for platforms to remove it were rebuffed. Now they resort to this kind of court action to make sure that the internet company, including Google and many others, will take down the song. That's Ho Feng Hong, a professor of political economy at Johns Hopkins University. He says the court's ruling shows that some judges in the former British colony are still willing to rule on strict legal reasoning rather than yielding to political pressure. The appeal will be a test. George Chen is managing director in Hong Kong for the consultancy The Asia Group. So the case will be also viewed by many you know, lawyers, legal professionals as a testament uh, of you know, how much in, in, in the independent judiciary in Hong Kong still has. If the appellate court upholds the original ruling, the government may take it to the Court of Final Appeal and possibly even China's legislature to get a favorable ruling. Ho Feng Hong of Johns Hopkins says if the government succeeds, it'll use the injunction to press internet companies like Google, Facebook, and others to remove the song. If they don't comply, then they will be violating the Hong Kong law and the injunction that the staff uh, and the company will be in legal trouble. But if they do comply, he says, they may come under pressure outside of China for helping the Hong Kong government crack down on free speech. John Ruich, NPR News. 
Oscar-winning actor Jamie Lee Curtis is on strike against the Hollywood studios as a member of the union SAG-AFTRA, but she has a separate career as an author. And today, a graphic novel she co-wrote goes on sale. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. Jamie Lee Curtis has written a number of best-selling books for children about feeling silly and being patient and liking yourself. But her new book, Mother Nature, is more in line with the horror movies she's known for. The Scream Queen co-wrote an eco-horror screenplay, which New Yorker illustrator Carl Stevens adapted into a graphic novel. I went through a lot of cadmium red. (laughs) Because there's a lot of blood. There will be blood in this book. During the recent Comic-Con in San Diego, fans got to see a video with some of the novel's images set to music. The story is set in New Mexico, where an energy corporation is fracking water under land leased from a Native American woman. Her daughter Nova tries to sabotage the water project and is struck by lightning. Curtis says Nova then becomes the spirit of Mother Nature, who takes revenge for being destroyed. I had an idea of every gruesome way that Mother Nature could kill people. You know, black ice, storms, tornadoes burning them up with extreme heat, hailstones to the head. What a way to go. It isn't nice to mess with Mother Nature, and in one key scene, an earthquake shakes loose the head of an oil drill, killing Nova's father, who worked for the energy company. Curtis says the climate crisis motivated her to write such a story. The inspiration is terror. The inspiration is fear that we are heading into a very, very dangerous place. Curtis says over the years she's been involved with the Natural Resources Defense Council, an environmental advocacy group, but she first imagined this story, Mother Nature, when she was just 19, influenced by 1970s disaster movies, The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. I was aware of the raping of the land. I was aware of the drilling and the blasting and the stealing of these natural resources. And I just had this idea in my head. I said, I'm going to write a movie about how we're blowing it with Mother Nature. I just knew it. And it stuck with me so that when in 2018, when I made the Halloween movie and got reinvigorated to the process of making movies, decided to write a screenplay, ended up working with Russell. That would be Russell Goldman, the son of a friend who was her assistant on the Halloween films. That was his great contribution to the screenplay, making it all about women. Women are cool. Women are cool. Yes. You heard it here on NPR. Women are cool. (laughs) Goldman says Mother Nature centers on mothers and daughters. It's a story about the decisions that one generation is making in leaving a planet behind for the next. The story's main mother and daughter are Navajo. Goldman researched the culture, and he collaborated on the script with several Native American consultants, including author and filmmaker Brian Lee Young. He says he helped incorporate elements of traditional Diné folklore depicting retaliating natural forces. This was the first time that I've seen the Navajo culture portrayed in a respectful way and also referencing that we have the power to reverse the dangers that climate change enacts on all our communities. I hope everyone gets to read it. It's a lot of fun, especially as a horror fan. At Comic-Con, Curtis told her fans they just might make Mother Nature into a movie someday. That would be fun. Maybe I'll direct it. Maybe I'll co-direct it. Maybe I'll be in it. Yeah. Maybe I'll do all of it. You know what? I'm 65 years old this November, and 
I have no time to waste. Yeah. None. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks so much for being with us here on 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Coming up, President Biden announces plans for a new national monument on lands around the Grand Canyon, while Native Americans in the area have been making the case for at least a decade. The move bans uranium mining. That story in about 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, working with New England artisans dedicated to using sustainable materials to craft furniture that lasts. Locations at circlefurniture.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow slipped almost 160 points, or half a percent. The S&P lost 0.4 percent. NASDAQ dipped 0.8 percent. Amazon is rolling out a grocery delivery pilot program in Boston. Amazon Prime subscribers can already get groceries delivered to them. Under the pilot program, people without Amazon Prime subscriptions can now order groceries from Amazon Fresh stores and warehouses. They will have to pay higher delivery fees. The pilot is also launching today in 11 other metro areas nationwide. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. We'll take WBUR along wherever you're heading this summer. Download or update the WBUR app and just tap to listen live and catch up on what's happening. Well, this evening might bring a few more showers and thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be a mostly cloudy night with temps in the upper 60s. Then tomorrow, the sun reappears. Temperatures will approach the mid-80s. Thursday will be mostly sunny, but we'll have a chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it is 83 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. If hip-hop was born at a party in 1973, it would be another six years until we had commercial hip-hop records. At the time, hip-hop happened live at parties. Nobody actually making it thought you could capture that on vinyl. That's the craziest idea ever. Music historian Dan Charnas. Who would think of making a record out of people talking over records? That song was not just the first major record, it changed the course of the movement. This week, hip-hop celebrates its 50th anniversary, and we're exploring key moments that helped define the music. Today, the story of Rapper's Delight, which is also the story of an artist-turned-record producer named Sylvia Robinson. In 1979, her record label was facing bankruptcy when she walked into her niece's birthday party in New York City. 
That's where she first saw a rapper working a mic over the hit of the summer. Good Times by the band Chic. She turns to her sister, Diane, and she says, essentially, you know, this is a sign from God. This is how the Lord is going to save me and save my company. I'm going to make a record out of this. Dan Charnas says that particular rapper didn't want to make the record. So out in the suburbs, she recruited some help. So she had her young son, Joe Jr., find a couple of his friends, three of his friends, actually, in New Jersey, where they live, to create a rap version of Good Times by Chic. Those three kids who weren't actually experienced MCs rhymed for one long take, nearly 15 minutes. Sylvia Robinson named the group after her childhood neighborhood in Harlem. They became the Sugar Hill Gang. And to everybody's surprise, this 15-minute song, Rapper's Delight, was a hit. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. Let's talk about the impact of that song with New York Times reporter Jonathan Abrams, author of The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip-hop, and with journalist and sociology professor Oliver Wong, editor of Classic Material, the hip-hop album guide. Hi, folks. Thanks for having me. Hey, how you doing? So, y'all, broadly speaking, at this point in time, what is the general public's reaction to Rapper's Delight? Is it a mainstream hit immediately? Is it seen like a novelty? What are people thinking? I think for the listening public, it initially certainly would have seemed much more like a novelty hit. You have this 15-minute single of people rapping over, you know, Good Times by Chic. And it wasn't until they started playing this and then the audience response was overwhelming that all of these light bulbs began and dollar signs probably started to go up over the heads of people in radio stations and in record labels to realize, oh, there is something happening here. So I think the fact that it can simultaneously be something that was both considered a novelty, yet also a legitimate pop hit, which it absolutely was. I mean, that's that's one of the great ironies of hip hop, right, Oliver, that a lot of those foundational members and DJs, when this thing really started to take off commercially, they were trying to figure where they had a place in all this because it was really a group that nobody had heard of that, that launched this thing. And I think the best example of that is somebody like Grandmaster Kaz. Big Bank was his manager for the Cold Crush Brothers. So he knew all of Grandmaster Kaz's lyrics, and a lot of them are appropriated for Rapper's Delight. But Grandmaster Kaz, at that time, he didn't care. It was only later that he heard it on the radio, and he still thought it sounded lame, but then he saw how people were reacting and responding to it and saw it becoming such a big hit. By the end of that summer, you have kids able to sing it all. So... If this all starts in 1979, I want to set a few other markers here. How quickly from that point do we start to see more rap records? When do we see rap on a major label? Well, you see Sylvia start to develop her own label and she starts to get groups like Grandmaster Flash. Then you have other record labels in in Harlem starting to, to bubble up. So it was very quickly where you started to see that surface. A lot of what you see in those early years are largely independent labels. And so I'm thinking of everything from Profile, which is uh, where Run DMC first started a couple years down the road. Run, run, 
So I think it really took a while for major labels to pay attention. But after a certain amount of time, they realized, oh, wait, this is, this is something serious. We should get on this because this is going to make us money. So how does this change the sound itself? Like, what do we start to notice in what we now call the production of these records and even the rapping itself? I think one of the big things here has to do with the evolution of music and production technology. Because the original Rapper's Delight is members of the Sugar Hill Band, which were largely session players who had been working with Sylvia Robinson for many years. It sounds like it's sampled because a lot of them are replaying the grooves that you hear from big disco or late era funk hits. But it's not sampled in terms of digitally sampled. Then when drum machines become more affordable, and this would be probably around, what, 82, 83, this is where you begin to see this big shift in the sound of the music. So I'm thinking of something like Run DMC's breakout single, Sucka MC's. All you need is those two guys and their DJ on stage, and that's it. And of course, when we get later into the 80s and 90s, even the DJ disappears. It just becomes about the rapper. Yeah, and I really think if you look at hip-hop and how it started, it was graffiti, it was lyricism, it was DJing. And I think that Rapper's Delight and its commercial success really fast-forwarded that uh, eventual change because once corporate America puts, you know, two cents into, into anything, it's something that's going to be changed forever. You think about those South Bronx parties. That culture, it's not that it gets wiped out, but it gets radically transformed in a way where you just can't go back. Yeah. So absolutely there was something gained, but I think it's always important to think about that Rapper's Delight also marks this point of something being lost, and lost in a way that was rather irrevocable. Yeah, and I think on, on one side, you know, what hip-hop had become the dominating force politically, socially, globally, like it is now without Rapper's Delight. It's it's hard to say that it would because Rapper's Delight was such a watershed moment that introduced hip-hop music to so many people, but it also became transformed forever. You can see it veering off from, from where it was going to, to what it became. That was Jonathan Abrams and Oliver Wong. Tomorrow, hip-hop takes on MTV. And welcome to Yo! MTV Rap Show! This is NPR News. And we're considering all things this afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR, including tiny rare snails. Understanding their decline could help mitigate broader climate changes. That story in 15 minutes. And tomorrow on Morning Edition, it's been a bad year for some Massachusetts farmers. Late frost, then torrential rain and floods brought extensive crop damage. Is this a new normal because of climate change? Listen again when you wake up. We'll have a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with temperatures in the upper 60s, bright and sunny in the 80s tomorrow. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting A Midsummer Night's Dream, now through September 10th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org.
The political organization No Labels claims it's trying to unite Americans around a third-party candidate for 2024. The American people are not divided. The leaders of both parties in Washington are divided. But are the group's goals so lofty? Could their efforts instead put Donald Trump back in the White House? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. UPS saw its revenue drop in the second quarter, lowering its revenue projections for the rest of the year today. This comes after the package delivery company agreed to a tentative labor deal averting a potential worker strike. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Marlon Hyde reports. Revenue dropped almost 11 percent from this time last year to over $22 billion for the iconic brown truck company. UPS officials say that some shifted away from the shipping giant to prepare for a possible strike after contract talks broke down last month. Carol Tomei is the company's CEO. So it's all hands on deck uh, to win back the volume that was diverted as a result of the labor negotiations. The tentative agreement may have averted a potential strike, but there are concerns over a potential increase in the cost of labor. UPS expects volume to build toward the holiday season when consumer spending and shipping typically pick up. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is declaring a state of emergency because of a record number of families in the shelter system there. She says the crisis is largely driven by newly arrived immigrants, many fleeing violence and upheaval in places like Haiti. Gabriela Emanuel of member station WBUR has more. Healy says more than 20,000 parents and children are in state-funded shelters. That figure is 80 percent higher than it was just one year ago. Healy called on the private sector and private citizens to open their homes and their wallets to these families. She appealed to the federal government to act. We need action to remove barriers and expedite federal work authorizations. The governor says many parents in the shelters are waiting months or years for the legal right to work. Healy follows other elected officials in making the emergency declaration to help with migrants seeking shelter. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lynn Jolliker. The town of Mattapoisett is assessing the damage after a 95-mile-an-hour tornado touched down there this morning. It caused trees to fall, blocked roads, and cut power for about 450 residents. A water treatment facility in the area is running on a backup generator after the tornado damaged it. Town Administrator Michael Lorenko says the tornado cut through a forested area and a residential one on the north side of town. We don't have any trees. Uh, that fell in the middle of homes. There are no serious injuries uh, that have been reported. Luckily, you know, a lot of trees came down, but they didn't go through homes. So uh, we're very lucky in that respect. He expects power to be restored to most residents this evening. A Boston man will serve four years in prison for the armed robbery of a postal worker in Peabody. 20-year-old Anthony Diaz was sentenced today after pleading guilty earlier this year to the charges. In January, Diaz held up the worker with a gun and stole a specialized key designed to open blue Postal Service collection boxes. The Department of Justice says in the last year there have been at least 12 assaults on letter carriers in the Boston area. We're a little over a month into the Sumner Tunnel closure, and the Massachusetts Department of Transportation is sharing some insight into how people have been getting around. The MBTA made its Blue Line service free during the work. Today, MassDOT's Jonathan Gulliver announced ridership on the T is up. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 percent increase 
during the closure period. Commuter rail not jumped up as much, but also a pretty notable increase up to uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11 percent, if I'm not mistaken. Gulliver says road congestion around the tunnel has increased, particularly during rush hour, but that traffic has remained manageable. The Sumner Tunnel is expected to reopen on August 31st. Vice President Kamala Harris will be on Martha's Vineyard Saturday to raise money for President Biden's re-election campaign. The so-called grassroots reception will be paid for in part by the Biden campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The Cape and Islands have been popular on the 2024 campaign trail. First Lady Jill Biden and Republican candidate Ron DeSantis held fundraisers in the region earlier this summer. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Royals tonight at Fenway if the weather uh, cooperates. The Sox are hoping to keep the momentum after a thrilling walk-off Grand Slam victory over Kansas City last night. Cutter Crawford will get the start on the mound. Well, we might see scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight. Then skies will start clearing out. We'll have a low in the upper 60s. Tomorrow looks much more peaceful and pleasant than today. It'll be mostly sunny with temps approaching the mid-80s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In Arizona today, President Biden announced a new national monument for an area adjacent to Grand Canyon National Park. Its primary aim is to protect Native American sacred sites on just under a million acres of federally owned land. Ryan Heinschus at member station KNAU in Flagstaff has been reporting on efforts to establish this newest monument for almost a decade. He joins us now from just outside Grand Canyon National Park. Hi there. Hi. Hi, Juana. Hey, Ryan. So tell us, what prompted the push to protect this land? You know, it's something indigenous people who live in and near the Grand Canyon have been asking for for decades. There's only one tribe who actually lives inside the Grand Canyon, the Havasupai, and they've been among the most outspoken of the more than dozen tribes here who have cultural and historic ties to the canyon. The Havasupai say uranium mining threatens their sole water source, Havasu Creek, and really their very existence, putting sacred and culturally important sites in danger. I recently spoke with Carletta Talusi, a former Havasupai council member and coordinator of the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition. The importance to protect the Grand Canyon for me personally is protecting the ancient burial sites of my ancestors. That's all we have left now as Native Americans our historical sites and our sacred places. Everything else has been taken from us. And Juana, the Biden administration has been very open to Native people's concerns. In March, the president designated a new national monument in Nevada for similar reasons to this one. That's the Avikwame National Monument in southern southern Nevada's Mojave Desert, which also contains sacred sites to several tribes. And of course, he appointed the nation's first indigenous cabinet member, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, and really put the region's tribes in the driver's seat for the current version of this 
monument proposal. And let's dig into this a little bit. Just how big of a threat is uranium mining to sacred sites near the Grand Canyon? There's no active uranium mining right now, and there's only one existing mine that's anywhere close to opening at this point. Back in 2012, the Obama administration put a 20-year moratorium on new uranium mining claims in this area. This new national monument makes that permanent. At this point, the uranium industry in the U.S. is very small, but with climate change, there is some momentum to develop more nuclear energy because it has no carbon emissions. Right now, the U.S. buys most of the uranium used in power plants here from Russia and former Soviet republics. I chatted with Curtis Moore with the company Energy Fuels Resources, which owns the sole uranium mine under development near the Grand Canyon. He told me there isn't any evidence that mining will contaminate groundwater. A lot has changed in the last 50, 60, 70 years. We know a lot more about how to mine uranium responsibly. The Grand Canyon is a national treasure, and we have every interest in protecting that as much as anybody. The uranium industry has opposed this monument for years, but the White House says this land inside the new monument only has less than 2% of the U.S.'s known uranium reserves and that there's plenty of uranium elsewhere. And Ryan, any sense of how Arizona residents feel about this new monument? A recent poll done by proponents of the new monument shows broad public support for it in Arizona, but there has been some significant pushback too. Ranchers remain opposed to it, even though the monument will continue to allow grazing and conservatives in Arizona generally don't like additional restrictions on public lands. They call it the president's actions government overreach. I should also say ranchers and conservatives in Arizona have opposed the new monument. Mm. That's Ryan Heinschus with member station KNAU. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. A riverfront fight in Montgomery, Alabama, between a black man and a group of white men has gone viral. Loads of people videoed this confrontation. This was on Saturday. It started when the white men refused to move a pontoon boat. This afternoon in Montgomery, the mayor and the police chief announced that three people have been charged and insisted. Well, first of all, this is not indicative of who we are as a city. The city of Montgomery is much better than that. Uh, Our people are fine people. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett was at that press conference. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Mary Louise. This video has been everywhere. It's been all over social media. It's on every time I look at TV. There it is. What what is the latest? Well, you're right. The story has a large following. But, you know, even with all the attention that we've been seeing across social media, we didn't know a lot of the details, Mary Louise, until today's press conference. Uh So briefly, as you said, on Saturday on the Alabama River, there were a number of boats, including a large riverboat named the Harriet II, and a smaller pontoon boat with white passengers. At some point, the smaller boat parked in the spot set aside for the riverboat. And the passengers on the Harriet II started chanting, telling the pontoon boat to move. Well, the passengers in the smaller boat ignored that, as well as directions from the boat captain to move. So they sent the co-captain in a smaller boat to the dock to talk to them. And in the words of Police Chief Daryl Albert. A confrontation ensued between the co-captain and Mr. Pickett, the co-captain, being attacked by several members of the private boat. Several members of the Harriet II came to Mr. Pickett's defense, engaging in what we all have seen sense on social media. Then, Mary Louise, it was an all-out fight, which began with the white passengers from the pontoon boat rushing in to attack the co-captain and onlookers joining in the fight. 
And the other thing we learned today was that a 16-year-old white boy who brought the co-captain to the dock in a smaller boat was also assaulted. Yeah. I mean, people who have not seen this video may be beginning to get the picture, but this was a brawl. You can see people pushing and shoving and punching and picking up chairs and slamming them down on people's heads. Um, Did we get any details of of injuries? Well, you know, Mary Louise, it's amazing because Chief Albert said that only one person required medical attention that he knew of. But, you know, as you just said, the other parts of this fight are what really has taken off in social media, including the chair throwing. There have been a lot of memes. I've seen a lot of them, like a video reenactment of the incident stage next to a swimming pool. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Mm-hmm. Some people have taken famous works of art and pasted folding chairs into them, mimicking the fight. But, Mary Louise, one person has emerged from all this as kind of a hero. There's a 16-year-old named Aaron. He's a black youth who jumped into the water from the Harriet II and swam to the dock to assist the captain. Mary Louise, the internet has dubbed him Black Aquaman, and he now has a publicist. He has a publicist. Wow. Sounds like 16-year-olds were the heroes here. Go on. Exactly. So now, despite all those memes, three white men who we see attacking the co-captain have been charged with assault in the third degree, which police say is a misdemeanor. How did police come up with those charges? Well, they looked at all the evidence, they questioned the witnesses, and they consulted with state police and the FBI on possible hate crimes charges on inciting a riot, but they say they couldn't find enough evidence where the law would allow for more serious charges. The police said race was not a factor in the assault as far as they could determine, and three white men were charged, 48-year-old Richard Roberts, 23-year-old Alan Todd, and 25-year-old Zachary Shipman. Now, the police chief wanted to make it clear to everybody that these three men were from Selma, Alabama, and not from Montgomery. And the police called this a standalone incident, and this kind of behavior is not tolerated in Montgomery, they say. Kyle Gassett with Troy Public Radio. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Scientists are racing to conserve species before more are gone. Recovery can take years to decades, but even the tiniest of critters are grabbing their attention. Reporter Taryn Mento has this look at a big effort to save a small upstate New York snail that can fit on your fingertip. Hiking is tricky when you're carrying a federally threatened species. Allie Whitbread carefully hops over logs and dodges prickers while toting a cooler full of tiny, rare snails. I've got the precious cargo with me right now. (laughs) The Chittenango ovate amber snails inside are facing extinction. They live at only one waterfall in upstate New York, and they're down to just dozens in the wild. The team of researchers from New York's College of Environmental Science and Forestry spent years growing them in captivity. And now they're placing a group of the snails and eggs at a hidden waterfall where they hope they'll survive. I feel like I've got like 500 babies to take care of. Just a very crazy mother hen. These efforts to sustain and study rare species can unlock their hidden benefits to humans, says University of Colorado Boulder ecology professor Laura D. She says some may possess unique traits that can provide what she calls option value. The idea that we might want to have a species 
down the line because of uncertainty of what the future is going to bring and what role that species might play. Like the once rare Madagascar rosy periwinkle, a compound from the plant is now used in leukemia treatments. Not every species will cure cancer, but Dee says more study is needed because we don't even fully know what happens if we lose them. Theory and other papers have shown that actually the loss of rare species can be particularly destabilizing because they might have these really unique and important feeding relationships or links. But even if there's no hidden connection or unique trait, just observing species in their habitats can help us. University of Utah biology professor Jack Longineau is cataloging the planet's ants. He says understanding how they communicate could help programmers with something like robotics. To create things, um, to make new technologies, we're, we're sort of imitating nature all the time. The Chitnango ovate amber snail doesn't have any known unique traits critical to humans, but the journey to just attempt to save them has been intense. It takes a half hour to hike to the new remote home of the snails, but it's actually been more than five years to get there, from site surveys, land negotiations, and just keeping the snails alive in the lab. Senior research support specialist Cody Gilbertson says the drive to save them can go deeper than just science. There's no way that I'm not going to be emotionally attached to these guys. They're so cute. They're like tiny babies that are one millimeter and they're, you know, their big eyes are staring back at you. Like there's no way that you're not going to kind of fall in love. And finally reaching the waterfall to let them go wasn't even the end. It'll be another five years before they know whether the snails can survive here. They'll take the hike twice a month to track their progress. For NPR News, I'm Taryn Mento in Syracuse. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for starting your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, stimulating memory with a tiny pulse of electricity in people who've suffered traumatic brain injury. That story in the next half hour here on 90.9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. In sports, the Red Sox will face the Kansas City Royals tonight at Fenway. Cutter Crawford will get the start. And tonight we have a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be a mostly cloudy night with temps in the upper 60s. The sun will return tomorrow. It looks like a mostly sunny day with temperatures in the mid-80s. More of the same heading into Thursday, a sunny day, at least until the afternoon when we might see some showers. And then Friday looks pretty picturesque at this point, sunny and 83 degrees. Right now, it is right around that temperature in Boston under mostly sunny skies, or mostly cloudy skies, I'm sorry. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. It's been nearly two years since the Taliban seized control of Kabul. Desperate Afghans continue to flee to the United States. Some are even scaling the wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. In the wall, they put something 
like a rope, and after that, they told us, come. One family story of survival on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Scott Tetro. James McBride's new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is a lot of things. It's at the very beginning a bit of a whodunit. It's also a high story and a love story. But it's mostly a close look at a community in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. At the heart of that community is a couple, Moshe and Chona, Jewish immigrants who live in a poor neighborhood called Chicken Hill. It was a perfect setting for where you put these people of different cultures in a place and see what happens. And so Chicken Hill was the part of town where blacks lived, Jews lived, white people, white people like, I don't know, Italians and Greeks and, and Irish who couldn't afford any better lived. And they all, they all pretty much got along. They all get along for the most part in McBride's 1930s setting, but there's also a deep awareness among the main characters of their differences, the lines that sometimes can't be crossed. The ability to just sort of accept the humanity of other people was something I've always tried to use, use in my work, and I've, I've always found it to be the most compelling element in terms of narrative drive. And so Chicken Hill was a perfect place to place this story. That story is about a boy named Dodo who has special needs. The state is trying to institutionalize him, and the community has to act together in order to protect him. That is easier said than done. I asked McBride how he landed on this plot. I was always fascinated with the idea about how these kids who are quote-unquote disabled end up in insane asylums in earlier times in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and so forth. The idea of the state trying to put this in, this deaf boy into Penhurst, which was a, just a horrible place, is really based on reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't hard to, to introduce that idea into my head, but it was hard to find a way to, to lay that conflict at the feet of the characters who, you know, who no one wants to challenge, uh, you know, a, a giant state institution yeah. like Penhurst or it'd be like challenging the, you know, the, the federal penal system or something. And this is, this is the character, Dodo, who is deaf and they're protecting him. Uh, Shona steps in to protect him as well. And, and Shona is just such a remarkable character. And I was hoping you could you could tell us a little bit about her and how you thought about her and how you thought her up. And I was also hoping, do you have a copy of the book in front of you by any chance? Yeah, uh-huh. I was hoping you could read a passage about Shona that, that really I thought made her just jump out and come alive to me, if, if you don't mind. It was, okay. Uh, it was on page 23 of the hardcover. Shona's years of stirring butter, sorting vegetables, and reading in the back room of the Heaven and Earth grocery store had given her time to consider. She read everything as a child, comics, detective books, and by the time she became a young wife, she devolved into reading about socialism and unions. She subscribed to Jewish newspapers, publications in Hebrew, and books on Jewish life, some from Europe. She knew more Hebrew than any Jewish woman in town. She could recite the Talmud better than most of the men in shul. Instead of sitting with the women in the balcony, she insisted on davening downstairs with the men claiming her bad foot prevented her from climbing stairs. Chona was, was a unique person. <clears throat> In many ways, she was modeled after my own mother and my grandmother because my mother was Jewish, raised in an Orthodox uh, Jewish home in Suffolk, Virginia, 
and worked in her family store and her yeah we we were wondering if there was a connection there yeah oh absolutely i mean i my grandmother lived a very difficult life you know she she wasn't she had a, a terrible marriage and her husband was was not a very good person so and she died really she she lost a lot before she died um you know my mother ran away from home and my uncle he ran away from home when he was 15 joined the army and was killed in world war ii and so I wanted my grandmother to have a, a, a better life, so I put her on the page and, and made her loved. Um, so a lot of this character is, is based on my mother and my grandmother and the kinds of things that, that I learned from, from my mother about Jewish life, and um, especially during that period. Yeah. There's such a sense of... Um the history of these places. Uh, you write about Pottstown. I, I, this jumped out to me because I lived and worked in this part of the world for a while. But, you know, the 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 other nearby cities, Reading, Philadelphia, almost are characters themselves, the way that people in Pottstown talk about people from those cities going to those cities. Do you have any ties to this uh, to this part of the world? Or is this just a lot of research that went into this? Well, I lived in Philly and, um, you know, I, I, I freelanced for the Philadelphia Inquirer back when it was the best paper in the country. Yeah. So I know the kind of writing talent, the kind of talent that Pennsylvania produces and the kind of the wide variety of life and the wide variety of people that live there and also the kindness and goodness of the people of Pennsylvania. Very nice people. I mean, Pennsylvania is a fascinating place. So um, I, I kind of wanted to just show, you know, that part of the country to readers and to let people experience the fact that this is the state where it, where it all began. And and also I wanted to, I don't think people really know that much about Jewish life in America, you know, in the 30s and 40s. I think people have a lot of misconceptions and there's just a lack of understanding about how far Jewish people have had to come. That's not to say that other people haven't had the difficult time. Yeah, But I think learning how these two groups... And, you know, blacks and Jews got together and worked, lived together and got along has something to show us about how to live today. I, I enjoyed reading about Moshe and his cousin Isaac and their experience of just fleeing uh, persecution in Eastern Europe, uh, arriving in America with no money whatsoever and and building up this this network of, of regional theaters and, and being successful. Well, that's, you know, that's based on real fact. And a lot of the theater owners were Romanians because they had nothing else. And so they could sing and dance or they could get people together to sing and dance. The journey is always the same. It doesn't matter what the group is. You know, you find a way in and then when you get in, you're in. But what you leave behind is, that's really the question. And for African-Americans, it's a little, it's a little more complicated because you get in and then maybe you're not in or maybe you're half in. But it's still the journey is the same. And our willingness or unwillingness to accept the great cultural riches that people bring here is really, you know, it's really going to determine our future. And if obviously having a grocery store is proof that if you just open the door and let people dance the way they want to, great things will happen. That's author James McBride. His latest novel is The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. James McBride, thanks so much for talking to us. Well, thank you. I appreciate you chatting with me.
You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From EBSCO, supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition, beneath the memes and TikTok videos of the racially motivated fight in Montgomery, Alabama, lie shifts in how we react to macroaggressions in the post-Black Lives Matter era. Context for that shift tomorrow morning. Listen when you wake up. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's been 18 months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the war has been documented more than any other. It is unique in the sense that it is being largely fought by millennials on both sides who are very used to communication devices and are able to tape it. It's Tuesday, August 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, for less than 12 hours last weekend, abortion bans in Texas were lifted. A doctor and a woman suing the state over its abortion bans will share their perspectives on the change. We'll have details on a treatment involving a tiny pulse of electricity to improve memory in people who've suffered traumatic brain injury. And the capture of Hank the Tank. A wildlife official from California details how and why the 400-pound bear by that nickname was taken in. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Coup leaders in Niger have rejected a visit by African diplomats trying to restore constitutional order in the country. But the U.S. says it's still hoping there could be a negotiated settlement. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The acting Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Nuland was in Niger Monday for what she described as difficult talks with some members of the military junta. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. is realistic about the prospects of reversing the coup. But we are not ready to throw up our hands and go home and stop trying to achieve a return to democracy and a return to constitutional order. We are going to continue to press for that outcome because it's one we support and one we believe ultimately the people of Niger support. 
For now, the U.S. has suspended tens of millions of dollars in aid, including funding for military training programs in Niger. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily reinstated a Biden administration rule affecting the sale of gun kits. NPR's Martin Costi reports the kits, sometimes called ghost guns, are growing concern for law enforcement. Last year, the Biden administration told sellers of gun kits to start putting serial numbers on them and to do background checks on buyers as they would for an assembled gun. Gun rights groups sued, saying the new rule exceeds what's allowed under the Gun Control Act of 1968. And in June, a federal judge in Texas struck it down. As the administration appeals, it asked the Supreme Court to step in on an emergency basis to keep the rule in effect, citing a rising number of untraceable guns recovered from crime scenes. The justices agreed, voting 5-4 to four to keep the rule in place for now. Gun rights groups question the severity of the ghost gun crime problem, and they say it's up to Congress to decide if the regulations should be extended to kits. Martin Costi, NPR News. UPS stock fell today after the delivery company lowered its 2023 revenue forecast. As NPR's Danielle Kay reports the package shippers expecting to feel the impacts of a tentative labor deal with the Teamsters Union. UPS's revenue in the most recent fiscal quarter fell short of Wall Street estimates, and the delivery company cut its full-year economic outlook. This caused shares of the company to drop in pre-market trading. In July, UPS reached a tentative labor agreement with the Teamsters Union, which represents 340,000 UPS workers. The deal averted a nationwide strike. But CEO Carol Tomei said on an earnings call that the talks caused a drop in delivery volume. It's all hands on deck uh, to win back the volume that was diverted as a result of the labor negotiations. The union won wage increases and more workplace safety protections in the new contract. The company says the labor deal could reduce its 2023 revenue. Danielle Kay, NPR News. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 158 points. The Nasdaq was down 110 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey has declared a state of emergency as Massachusetts faces a record number of families in the state-run shelter system. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports Healey is calling on communities and residents to act along with the federal government. Healy says the crisis is partly driven by an increase in new immigrants. Many of them are fleeing upheaval in places like Haiti. There are now more than 5,500 families in state-funded shelters, representing some 20,000 parents and children. It's more families than our state has ever served, exponentially more than our state has ever served in our emergency assistance program. Healy called on state residents to open their homes and their wallets, and she asked the federal government to expedite work authorization, saying many new arrivals are eager to work but can't legally do so. Healy follows other elected officials in making the emergency declaration to help with migrants seeking shelter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The state commission charged with certifying police officers has released its first list of officers and their status more than two years after the panel began its work. Data from the Police Officer Standards and Training Commission, or POST, show more than 10,000 people are certified to work as police officers in Massachusetts, but more than 280 officers are not certified, meaning they didn't complete the required training or are on leave or have a disciplinary matter. 
Researchers are celebrating the Food and Drug Administration's approval of a pill to treat postpartum depression. Neuroscientist Jamie McGuire of Tufts University School of Medicine did some of the initial research that became the building block of the pill's formulation. She says she hopes the FDA approval will reduce the stigma women who struggle with postpartum depression feel. Women's health, and and in particular maternal health, has lacked appropriate attention and resources. As a result, postpartum depression has gone underdiagnosed and lacked targeted therapies. My hope is that this orally available treatment will make the treatment more accessible and more affordable. McGuire says researchers will continue to study the effectiveness of the drug for major depressive disorder. While the severe weather that moved through the state earlier today sparked a tornado east of New Bedford, the National Weather Service says it struck Mattapoise at around 11.30 this morning. Officials in the town say the storm damaged homes and trees and caused a number of trees and power lines to come down. There have been no reports of injuries. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it should be much calmer on the weather front the rest of this evening. She says uh, tonight we have a chance of showers and thunderstorms, maybe some pop-ups overnight. Otherwise, it will be mostly cloudy overnight tonight. Then clearing out tomorrow for a mostly sunny day with temperatures around 84 degrees. The sunshine will continue into Thursday, although there will be a chance of showers that afternoon. And then Friday looks like a beautiful lead-in into the weekend with sunny skies once again and a high of about 83 degrees. It is 83 right now in Boston under mostly cloudy skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A pair of Russian missile strikes slammed into a town in eastern Ukraine today, destroying apartments and cafes and a hotel popular with international aid workers and journalists. Seven people were killed, dozens injured, including emergency workers who raced to the scene of the first attack. Now, we want to take a step back for this next story. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has covered more than a dozen wars dating back to the 1980s, from Africa to Asia to the Middle East and now in Ukraine. He says the conflict in Ukraine is distinctly different for one important reason. It's the most documented war ever. When I started covering wars, a typical day was often like this. You woke up in a place with no electricity, no phone service, no television or newspapers. The internet didn't exist. In this news vacuum, every day was a blind treasure hunt. You'd swing by a government office, track down a military officer, visit a hospital, hang out at the marketplace. If you were lucky, by day's end, you'd found a story. Ukraine is different very different. There's more information from this war than probably any war in history, um, immediately available. Rob Lee is a Marine veteran who's now a military analyst with the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. This fire hose of information was evident from the first day of Russia's full-scale invasion in February of last year. There was this kind of overload of information. It was, it was kind of difficult to keep track of a lot of it, and you kind of have to focus on one thing, one thing at a time because the whole kind of picture was was really, uh, there's just too much information. Andrei Saplienko is a leading Ukrainian TV journalist who's reported on many conflicts. He says he's fundamentally changed the way he works. I felt it from the 
first hour of this war. When I get a call from my friend and he told me, so the invasion has started. And I decided to share this news as soon as possible. He posted on Telegram, the social media app of choice among Ukrainians and Russians. Saplienko had fewer than 10,000 followers at that point. Today, he has more than 300,000 on his Telegram channel, which he updates constantly with battlefield reports, videos, and nuggets of news. You have to do it quicker, much more quicker than before. And traditional media, like television or papers or even websites, they are too slow. They are too slow. They are you know, several steps behind the situation. The conflict in Ukraine is the most documented war for at least three reasons. The first is simply the march of technology, which offers a real-time look at the fighting as never before. Private satellite companies provide daily images of destruction inflicted on both sides of the front line. A drone films itself dropping a grenade on troops and trenches. Dmitry Alperovich, a prominent commentator on the war, says all this information is hugely helpful, but he adds a caveat. In some ways, it's really addictive to wake up in the morning, open up Telegram, and see this flood of videos, text messages, pictures showing you what's been occurring while you were asleep. Alperovich lives in Washington, where he runs a think tank, the Silverado Policy Accelerator, but I caught up with him in Ukraine because he says there's only so much you can learn from afar on social media or other sources. It's really, really important to understand that this is a very selective view that's being presented by each of the sides fighting this war. Uh, it can give you a lull into thinking that you know more than you actually do about the way the war is going. Rob Lee puts it this way. If there is a missile strike on a tank and that tank blows up, and if it goes on Twitter, right, a big fireball will get retweeted. So a lot of people will see that. Lee understands Twitter, now known as X. His following has grown from around 50,000 before the full-scale war to 670,000 today. But he stresses the war that's on social media can be very different from the actual war. There are a lot of videos also of missiles hitting tanks, right? Tanks surviving the strike. It's not going to retweet that much because it's not a very kind of interesting video. I think a lot of people early on came to this very wrong conclusion that tanks were more obsolete than they were. The second big reason this war is so well chronicled is that much of Ukraine still functions despite the heavy fighting in the east and south of the country. Foreign journalists, aid workers, and diplomats all come and go freely to the capital, Kiev, and elsewhere. Schools, shops, and businesses are still operating, displaying Ukraine's resilience. This greatly benefits Ukraine, says Anton Garishchenko, a former government official who now heads a team that tweets constantly on the war and has nearly a half million followers. Ukraine has won the information war. Hundreds of millions of people all over the world saw our suffering and put pressure on their governments to provide us with support. This international attention focused on Ukraine is far greater than in other wars in less connected, less accessible countries such as Syria, Yemen, or Libya. A third crucial factor dates to Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine back in 2014. At that time, Ukraine felt it was struggling to get its message out to the world. International news organizations often had a permanent presence in Moscow, but not in Kyiv. In response, Ukraine made a major effort to accommodate media coverage. Again, 
Ukrainian reporter Andrei Saplienko. In Ukraine, the access to first-line positions is comparatively easy thing. In contrast, he says... So I used to work with the American forces in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. It doesn't work like this. It's a process. You know, you have to be embedded through the many procedures. On a frontline visit last year, Saplienko suffered shrapnel wounds. He now has an artificial hip, walks with a limp, and spends less time at the front. But with so much information available, he says, he can do more analytical work from a safer distance. Of course, the Ukrainian and Russian governments still want to keep parts of the war hidden. Yet even this comes with a twist. Russian military bloggers, often embedded with Russian troops, provide daily coverage from the battlefield. They're highly partisan, yet they're often the first to report Russian setbacks. Again, Dmitry Alperovich. You have this uh, unique dynamic where the Russian bloggers uh, and, and these ultra-patriots are very disappointed with the way the war has been going on. Um, they've been increasingly more truthful about the failures of the Russian military. Just one of the many ways this war is being covered like no other. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. People who've had a severe traumatic brain injury often struggle to remember recent events or conversations. So brain scientists are looking for ways to help. NPR's John Hamilton reports on an approach that delivers tiny pulses of electricity to improve short-term memory. Most traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs, are the mild type, a concussion. A fall or blow to the head causes symptoms that typically last a few days or weeks. Severe TBIs are far less common. But Dr. Ramon Diaz-Arastia says they can permanently impair a person's thinking and short-term memory. We see this a lot. This is a very common source of disability. Diaz-Arastia directs the TBI Clinical Research Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Among his patients are young men who were injured in a car or motorcycle crash. He says they often recover physically, but not mentally. We have patients, for example, whose family cannot leave them alone at home because, you know, they will turn on the stove and forget to turn it off. Diaz-Arastia says even less disabled patients are frequently unable to go back to work. People that are having trouble remembering what they read five minutes ago or having trouble remembering what they were told five minutes ago are going to have a lot of problem holding the vast majority of jobs. So Diaz-Arastia has been working with a team of scientists to restore damaged memory. One of them is Michael Kahana, professor of psychology at Penn. For years, Kahana has been studying why even a healthy person's memory works well sometimes and not so well other times. My memory is different than it was an hour ago or than it will be an hour from now. And it's that variability which may open the door to a whole host of potential ways that we can help people improve. By tweaking the brain so that it performs as well as it does in the best hour of its best day. Kahana's team started out by having a computer learn to recognize the electrical signals associated with retrieving a memory. We can predict in a moment-to-moment basis when memory will fail or succeed within a given person. Next, the team devised a system that could deliver a precisely timed pulse of electricity to a brain area just behind the ear. It would detect that you're about to have a memory lapse and it would try to jostle the system into a state that's more conducive to good function. The system worked in a small group of people without a history of TBI. 
That's when Kahana teamed up with Diaz Aristia, the TBI expert, to put together a new experiment. So in this study, for the first time, we actually tested this therapy in patients who had a history of moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. The study, which appears in the journal Brain Stimulation, involved eight people. Like previous participants, all were being evaluated for severe epilepsy, so they already had wires inserted in their brains. Scientists use these wires to both monitor activity and deliver electrical pulses. Kahana says the participants were shown a list of words. Common English words like key, car, rose, cat, book, lamp. Then they tried to remember which words they'd seen. Kahana says when the system saw that a person was about to have a memory lapse, it sent an electrical pulse to that brain area behind the ear. By electrically stimulating at only moments when you were predicted to fail, we were able to move the brain from a poor state into a better state. Stimulation improved their accuracy by about 20%, suggesting that it reduced their memory deficit by about half. Kahana has a financial interest in one company that plans to commercialize this technology. Several other companies are also working on brain stimulation systems. The systems are designed to boost memory and thinking in people with a range of conditions, including Alzheimer's disease. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker. Coming up on Marketplace, exports from China and other Asian countries fell more than expected in July. What does the shift in export demand tell us about the state of the global economy? That's on Marketplace at 630. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow went down almost 160 points, or half a percent. The S&P dipped 0.4 percent, and NASDAQ lost 0.8 percent. In local business news, passenger traffic at Worcester Regional Airport is back to pre-pandemic levels. Airport officials announced on social media that more than 193,000 passengers came to the airport in fiscal year 2023. That period covers July of 2022 through June of this year. The airport is serviced by by three major airlines offering direct flights to New York and Florida. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham with the ice cream window to beat the summer heat open until 9 each night scooping local Crescent Ridge ice cream. Volantefarms.com for more info. Well, we could see some pop-up showers and thunderstorms tonight. Temps overnight will be in the upper 60s. Then skies clear out and the sun reappears tomorrow. The high tomorrow will be around 84 degrees. Thursday, a chance of showers in the afternoon, otherwise mostly sunny with temps in the mid-80s. And Friday and Saturday, 80s again with more sunshine. Right now, it is 83 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Late Friday, for a few hours, Texas's abortion laws changed. Abortions became legal for patients with serious pregnancy complications. On Saturday, the bans came back in full force. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more on what happened with the state's abortion laws 
And what happens next? This back and forth came as part of a lawsuit filed earlier this year by the Center for Reproductive Rights. Thirteen patients sued Texas, saying the medical exceptions were unclear. They all needed abortion care for pregnancy complications, but that care was denied or delayed. In July, four of them took the stand in Travis County in two days of intense, dramatic testimony, arguing that the bans should be put on hold while the case moves through the courts. On Friday evening, Jessica Mangrum, the judge who heard that testimony, filed a six-page decision in favor of the patients and put a hold on the abortion bans when it comes to emergent medical conditions and serious fetal anomalies. Just so excited. Lauren Miller of Dallas is one of the patients who sued. On Friday night, when she saw the decision come out, she was elated. I feel like for the last year, we have just been crying, screaming, for somebody in the legislature, somebody in the judiciary to help us. And we really hadn't gotten that until now. And so it just, it felt like we were finally being heard. Dr. Damla Carson is also one of the plaintiffs. She is an OBGYN. I was on call Friday night. I thought, okay, send me all the patients that need care quick. She says that night, with the injunction, she felt like she could be freer to treat patients facing complications without worrying about the possibility of life in prison or losing her medical license, the penalties for violating the state's abortion bans. In her decision, Judge Mangrum wrote that the medical exceptions in the current laws are unclear and that doctors need to be able to follow their good faith judgment in treating patients with complications without waiting for them to get near death before intervening. It was definitely validation, but I also knew that it was going to be very short lived. I mean, we fully expected an appeal. And that's what happened. On Saturday, the state of Texas used a special avenue to appeal the decision on the injunction directly to the Texas Supreme Court, putting the bans back in place. The Texas Attorney General's office did not respond to NPR's request for comment for the story. Doctors are the target of the laws in Texas. And during the hearing last month, attorneys for the state asked every patient who testified if they were planning to file malpractice claims against their providers for the harrowing experiences they described. They tried to say that anybody who didn't provide the appropriate care, quote unquote, that was malpractice. And then they took it a level further, I think, and implied at least that it was the hospital attorney's fault. In reality, Dr. Carson says, everybody in the medical field is scrambling and afraid. The penalties are so steep. She recalls a recent exchange with a pharmacist who refused to fill a prescription for one of her patients. It was for misoprostol, a medication that can be used for abortion, but is also used for many other things. In this case, for a woman who was getting an IUD for birth control. He had the nerve to get on the phone and say, if I administer this medicine to someone who's trying to get an abortion, it's a $10,000 fine. And I said, I am absolving you of your responsibility. I am telling you it's not for an abortion. She says she realizes this kind of circumstance isn't going to go away overnight. The lawsuit is a long game, and she's glad she can be part of it and not feel helpless. So now the question of the injunction goes to the Texas Supreme Court. Elizabeth Sepper is a law professor at UT Austin. She explains all nine justices are Republican. She says they can be nimble, so they could make a decision quickly. But it's not clear what they'll do in this case. So you could imagine a very narrow ruling that says something like, right, there's not a need for an injunction right now because the status quo is the abortion ban is in place. Let's have a trial. If it is a narrow ruling like this, the trial is set for March 2024 in Austin. 
But a lot of times, right, when you're dealing with injunctions, courts are also analyzing the merits, right? So if the court says a lot about the merits of the case, you would certainly see, for example, a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. That argument would go, this case shouldn't go to trial because you don't need a trial to know that Texas will ultimately prevail and keep the abortion laws as is. Sepper thinks going to trial is important to draw attention to what's happening to patients in Texas. I think it matters to have their voices heard and reported on. For now, the Texas abortion bans with their narrow medical exceptions and steep penalties remain in place. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. One of the most wanted home break-in suspects in South Lake Tahoe, California, has been captured. It's a big deal. Really, almost a 400-pound deal. When we investigate a bear break-in, we go and we take evidence to make sure that it was a bear. And it was, indeed, a massive black bear, according to Jordan Traverso, spokesperson for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. The bear has been notorious for damaging property and breaking into houses across the area for more than a year now. So notorious that residents gave the bear a nickname, Hank the Tank. Although she is a female bear, we call her Bear 64F. Traverso says her colleagues safely tranquilized Hank, a.k.a. Bear 64F, last week after linking her to at least 21 break-ins since last year using DNA and forensic evidence. It is wild animal CSI, and it's actually, I think it's incredibly cool. It's not the first time wildlife officials have encountered 64F either. She had an existing rap sheet. The department actually first captured and tagged her last year. So this is how we know that we have bears that are repeat offenders because we found their saliva in this home invasion and in this home invasion and in this one over here. And so that's how they get a rap sheet. Okay, here's the other thing to know. Bear 64F had cubs in the past year. Traverso says she was likely teaching them to hunt in the wild and inside people's homes. In an ideal situation, a bear would teach their cubs how to get fish out of a river, how to find berries off of a berry plant. Um, in this situation, because the food reward was so much easier to get, you don't have to chase it, you don't have to dig for it. Some human left it in a pile outside a, a bear box and she was able to get in there and get it easily. A cub is going to learn how to get food from how its mother teaches it to do so. And that's what she would eventually end up teaching those cubs. Traverso also says there were other bears breaking into homes too, but the animals aren't solely to blame in these situations. Really, the bad behavior is amongst humans who are having attractants in their homes or not securing their garbage. And sometimes it's one homeowner could be great, but your next door neighbor might be a vacation home or some folks aren't doing what they have to do. Still, it's 64F and her cubs who will bear the brunt of the consequences of the growing urban French. Officials say 64F will now live out her life in a roomy sanctuary in Colorado. It's a really actually lucky ending for a bear like this because we don't always have sanctuary space. We don't have the ability to send problem bears in California to Colorado. This is a very unique alternative that I don't imagine we'll be able to employ maybe ever again. And as for Hank's cubs, they'll undergo rehabilitation in Northern California to get them ready for release back into the wild. So residents of South Lake Tahoe, consider yourself warned.
This is NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Electro-pop singer FC headlines our last Sound On Musical Festival of the summer at WBUR City Space, Thursday, August 24th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. A few showers and thunderstorms might pop up tonight. The low will be around 67. Tomorrow, skies will brighten. We'll have a high around 84. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit. See art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 4th. ICABoston.org.